Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. Are you ready to unlock the full potential and growth in your business? You've already crossed seven figures in sales, but the challenge is knowing how to take your business to the next level. Join Josh Hadley, an eight-figure e-com business owner and investor, as he interviews highly successful business owners. Get ready, because you're going to learn specific actions you can take today to help your business reach its full potential and leave a lasting impact on the world. Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hadley, where I interview the top business leaders in e-commerce. Past guests include Kevin King, Howard Tai, and Roland Frazier. Today, I'm speaking with Pat Yates, an M&A advisor at Quiet Light and owner of Happy Feet Slippers. And today, we're going to be talking a lot about licensing and preparing your business to exit. This episode is brought to you by Ecom Breakthrough Consulting, where I help seven-figure companies grow to eight figures and beyond. Listen, Pat, I started my e-com business back in 2015, and it took me seven years to grow it to an eight-figure brand. There were a lot of times that I struggled with the challenge of knowing whether my business could actually succeed financially or if my brand could actually become a real well-known brand or even myself as a leader, whether I had the abilities and capabilities to lead a team and actually manage a group of people. Sure. For our listeners that have had similar experiences or hit similar plateaus, go to ecombreakthrough.com and that's ecom with two M's. And you can learn a little bit more about how I can help you. And to our listeners, this month I'm giving away one $10,000 comprehensive business strategy audit session at no cost. All you need to do is email me at josh at ecombreakthrough.com. And in your subject line, just say strategy audit. And then tell me why I should choose your business as the business to do the strategy audit for this month. And don't worry if you don't win this month because you'll be entered to win for future months to come. But I'm super excited to introduce you all to Pat Yates. Pat is a seasoned entrepreneur with a focus on e-commerce. In 2014, he struck a deal with Robert Hershevac on the Emmy award-winning show Shark Tank. Pat grew a single slipper kiosk business into a multi-million dollar e-commerce focused business. During that time, Pat has done licensing deals with DreamWorks, the NCAA, the NFL, and Disney. And in 2015, he struck up a relationship with Mark the founder of Quiet Light Brokerage, and continued eventually leading him to becoming an M&A advisor. So welcome to the show, Pat. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. Pat, I watched your Shark Tank episode and loved uh, you know, everything you kind of went through yeah. in that episode. You ended up doing a deal with Robert, who, mm -hmm. uh, who first kind of went out pretty early on, yeah. at least in the episode. And then he comes back in and kind of swoops up the deal <laughs> at the last moment. How was that experience being on Shark Tank and, and going through that? Yeah, it's, I mean, I've talked a lot about it over the past few years because um, as one of the people that likes on the speaking circuit with me likes to call me the OG, one of the OGs in Shark Tank because I'm on season five. <laughs> they have so many seasons now. I'm like, I can't be old at everything. I hate that. But um, I mean, it's it's a difficult process in the very beginning. You have to submit several videos and a lot of written documentation, a lot of due diligence. And, uh, you know, I was turned down in season one or, or season two or something like that. And then they called me back as season five was coming because they were ramping so much. And I was one of the people that came down to the very end and had to fly out there and, and do my pitch in front of the producers to even see if they'd keep me. So 
uh, I did that and then it aired in 2014 and it was awesome. I mean, the show was going, I mean, my, my time was going poorly in there for like 80% of it. You know, you're in there like an hour and 15 minutes. Most people don't realize that. And it's cut to eight. So for most of the time, it wasn't going very well, but the end was pretty good. Yeah, yeah that's, that's amazing. How yeah. was it, you know, doing a deal with Robert and what's kind of his involvement been since you did that deal with him? Well, the deals that you do on Shark Tank in, are, in, are definitely theory and practice things. You know, one of you come up with a deal and then it, it closes or it doesn't. I mean, a lot of people that I talk to and I'm involved in a pretty deep Shark Tank group, you know, most of those deals don't close as you see them. And, and really, truly, most deals don't close, period. Um, you know, our deal, we did not do the financial terms we saw on the show. We just did a relationship and we didn't do any kind of money transfer, just a small equity portion to be able to help. So the relationship's been more just assisting at anything that I need over the last few years. And I really don't utilize Robert for a whole lot of things other than big things. He went to DreamWorks with me. He went to Disney with me. Um, so really just for higher level things. And I can work with his team on a regular basis, but I don't have to utilize them very much anymore. Uh, we stay close enough to, to keep a touch point is pretty much where it's at. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've had other uh, friends that have been on Shark Tank. And yeah, they say the experience that you see, you know, just on the on the TV episode, that eight minutes is really, you know, just a brief glimpse and not the reality of what happened during that hour plus that you, you were actually yeah. there. It's definitely time. not indicative because you don't get any restroom breaks, no drink breaks, no nothing. You're standing there and it's you, those five and all these cameras and producers. It's 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 more more intimidating than some people would think. Plus, it's cold as hell in there because it's huge soundstage. It's just not the easiest thing in the world to get through. But if you get through and it, it, you look good on TV, that's great. But, you know, as you can see, there's a lot of people that don't come across that way either. And it's it's kind of difficult. Like one small thing people don't realize is you have to sit with a counselor after you're done. I've heard varying time amounts, but I was told it was an hour. I was in there for an hour that you have to sit with a counselor and you can't leave. It's like, even if you say I'm in a great mood, you have to do that hour. You can't leave because they don't want you to be depressed about something that went on it, obviously. And, you know, there are people that come out of there thinking their business could be ruined. So it's it's a really interestingly controlled environment. It's fun. It's it's different. Uh, but it's, you know, the PR that you get out of it is worth its weight in gold. Typically, yeah. if you do well. That's fascinating. And that's what I was going to actually ask you there. Did you see as soon as the, your episode aired, did you see a lift in sales on your website? Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody gets that lift. We did several hundred thousand dollars in sales in an off portion of our season. So it was a really big hit of sales. Mm. Continues to be when CNBC re-airs it, not as much as it used to be because the traction just isn't there as much anymore. But we definitely saw a huge uptick in sales based on the 8 million people that watched on TV, especially when we got the rerun. I was one of the few people that did Shark Tank, Beyond the Tank, and the update. So I did all three. Oh, okay. And, you know, not very many people have done all three. So it, the production time it took for Beyond the Tank was way deeper than Shark Tank. And it was a terrible really? show. It was canceled like three seasons in. It just wasn't very good. Um, but I did that one as well. So I put, spent a lot of production time on that show, truly. Interesting. Very fascinating. You know, one thing I, I'm interested in as we dive into this, um, you know, you, the slipper business, Happy Feet, started mm -hmm. more as like a mall kiosk business, right? right? And then you kind of took it into the e-commerce world and have right. since continued to grow it there. One of the questions they asked you there on Shark Tank, and Kevin pointed it out, there's nothing proprietary about your business. I'm right. going to go create my own slipper company tomorrow and just knock off all of your yeah. designs. Um, at the time, your response is like nobody out there in the market was trying to knock you off. 
Since that time, what have you seen in terms of, you know, people trying to knock you off and how have you been able to protect yourself? Because Happy Feet is still, you know, Slippers is still a growing business. I mean, you know, I think our our business is really kind of segmented. Like if you go to Amazon and you look at our Disney Slipper listing, all of our products are somewhere between $29 and $45, which every other Disney Slipper you're going to find there is 15 bucks. 12 to 17. I mean, we're way priced higher than most everything. Um, I think when we when we try to, try to look at Happy Feet for, as a brand and what we, we made the comment no one else was doing it, there are people that sell animal slippers and other things now. What we needed to do was build a higher quality product that, you know, we think is, is something people enjoy. It's more fun looking. Um, and then we took the licensing to try to drive traffic and build a brand. And I think when we comes down to it, there's a confidence level in someone that has seen a name and a brand before. So that differentiates us a little bit. But again, you know, like slippers isn't someone something someone wakes up one morning and says, hey, I just got to be in this business because it's actually kind of an afterthought in a lot of situations because it it, it gets lumped in with the shoe licenses when we're in licensing. So sometimes you get the same people that are doing shoes that have slippers and they don't even make slippers. So. It's mm. it's an odd space because it's seasonal and it's a lot of skews and it's not one that many people want to be in. I think that's part of the protection. Uh, but for us, we just tried to really be different and we just try to do fun things. Like I'm in the process. Last year was the first time in many years I've been I've actually done a ton of new styles. And we did that because we're trying to flip up the look of the standards, flip up the look of the animals and change what we're really about. So. I think that we don't ever really have the goal to be a, a, a massive, you know, private equity level firm. Our company, we just want to be a great novelty uh, business that that you know provides a good product and service that people have fun with. That's really the biggest thing. So, what's the what is the reason that people haven't gotten as much into it? It's probably just based on the space. But um, you know, we still have a very solid brand. Yeah. And I think that's what's so important. Um, obviously, you're selling on Amazon, and a lot of our listeners um, sell on the Amazon platform. And one thing, especially for our brand, as soon as we launch a product, it is no more than six months to a year after we launch something new that there are knockoffs from overseas competitors that are trying to replicate something. Granted, sure. the quality is a little bit less, and you know their prices drastically cheaper than what we're selling ours at. But how does a an e-commerce business owner protect their brand going forward, like the things that you mentioned, from all of those knockoffs when you don't have a utility patent or even a design patent on something like that? I mean, it's extremely difficult. Quite like we talk about making sure that you you know, have your trademarks and your patents and everything in place. The reality is a patent is only as good as the patent is. If someone goes around it and does something slightly different, they are, it, they'll be in the market. So sometimes it's a little more difficult, but I would make sure that your legal is in as best condition it possibly can, especially with the brand name. Because at the end of the day, most of the people that are trying to knock you off are also going to do search around your brand name. And you can sometimes find ways that, that people do that. Like I found people last year, they're advertising with my brand name. They're going to be hearing from me. That's mm. the thing you have to do. You have to be vigilant in defending your trademarks and your patents and make sure that people understand if they're going to come in and they're going to try to do that, you have to be able to call them on it. If not, they'll just continue to do it. So yeah. defensibility is really important in it. And patents are sometimes really expensive to defend, but trademarks are a little easier to defend. So I would just try to keep those in line and make sure that you're doing the best to make the best product you can at the best price. Yeah. And I think that's great wisdom. That's something that I've done as well. You know, over the first couple of years of business, 
you know, we would launch products and again, we would have knockoffs shortly thereafter. One Uh thing that's changed for us is we did partner with with an IP attorney that focuses on doing our copyrights, our design patents, our trademarks. And a shout out to Rich Goldstein. He's the the guy that we've partnered with and he's been on the podcast in the past. But we finally started taking our IP seriously. And it wasn't just a matter of like, hey, we have a copyright or a design patent for this product now. What we have to do now is I have a full team where on a day daily basis, they're going in Amazon and they are looking for those knockoffs because if you can catch somebody the day or the day after they've launched something and you're immediately, you know, sending them a cease and desist notice or you're filing that uh, right. IP infringement claim against them on Amazon, those people are going to see, oh, these people actually protect their brand and we're just going to start avoiding this brand moving forward. There's a lot yeah. of other easier targets to go after than this brand that actually is taking things seriously. So definitely a shout out to what you had just talked about of you've got to protect it. You've got to use the manpower behind it to actually start enforcing it and having a team member that's dedicated to it. Yeah. I mean, there's any more, you, you find so many people that can ship products directly from China that they're knocking off. They don't have to have a significant investment in product to be able to try to knock you off. And sometimes they're just looking for a reaction. And if they put something up and you never defend the trademark, then it's worthless. That's why you have to make sure that, especially with Amazon, that you're going in and doing that. Yep, totally agree. So, Pat, I'm curious with Happy Feet Slippers, what percentage of your you know, revenue, if, if you're allowed to share it, yeah. uh, comes from Amazon versus your own website sales versus other channels that you're selling into? Just to kind of give us a lay of the land of what different channels you're selling your slippers? It it makes sense. Um, You know, we have a very mature website from the direct standpoint. Like we, when you're on Shark Tank and everyone goes to your direct site, very few people, I mean, people found us on Amazon, but the lion's share of the sales were on the direct site because they want to see other things. We built a huge following there. We did a license with Snooki. We've done so many things that we built a big uh, following on our site. So our sales are around 50-50. Amazon probably edges a little bit ahead. Uh, it used to be more like 75, 25, but we put a lot of time and effort into our our, our uh, direct site. Plus, we also had an issue with uh, the NFL products on Amazon due to some restrictions in the NFL that knocked us down a little bit uh, in our Amazon sales, which you know is a whole other story. But it's uh, it's one of those things that right now we're about 50, 50. Normally, we should probably be like 75, 25. And most times, like at Quiet Light, when aggregators were buying business, they really would like it to be 80, 20. But... I don't, I don't really think there's any magic to 80-20 versus 60-40. It's, it's more semantics to me. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and I, I remember on your, your Shark Tank episode, they had, you, know, you had talked about you had partnered with Snooki even before she became famous. Is that correct? Well, I, I guess it's kind of co- coincidental with her being famous. It's, she, the, 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 the short note, uh, the cliff notes of the story is this, you know, Snooki had, had bought our product. She was a fan of the product. She bought it and she threw it in her suitcase to go to the show and she started wearing it on the show when they were taping. And we had no idea. Like I, I say this passionately all the time when I speak is my son walked into my room and said, dad, Snooki's wearing your slippers on Jersey Shore. I said, I only have two questions. Who's Snooki and what's Jersey Shore? I had no idea. It's true. I'd never seen the show ever. And I walked in and he rewound it and there she was wiping up something in our pink and white slippers off the floor. We got all these emails, all this social attention. So I knew there was something there. 
everyone that I knew told me not to do anything with her. They said, she'll end up doing something stupid and it'll reflect on you and you don't need to do that. I signed a big dollar licensing deal with her in 2009 before she really became, you know, the 8 million uh, or 6, 7 million Twitter followers. She only had about 800,000 or a million, I say only. But uh, we did that deal with her and it's it's always been good for us. Her leopard has been one of the top selling items we've ever had. Interesting. And so if I'd have listened to other people and instead of taking my instincts, I wouldn't have done that deal, which would have been a mistake. Interesting. Tell me more about how that conversation went with Snooky. How did you approach that conversation with her and set up that kind of licensing deal with her? Was it for, you know, did, did she have any stake in the rest of your uh, other products that you were selling or was it just catered to one product that she was going to be promoting? Tell me more about that. Yeah, it's a great question. I reached out to her management and actually her, her uh, top agent actually out of Buffalo, New York is a really close friend of mine. Uh, now we did, you know, we just met through that and he had an agency or a group in Chicago that was handling all of her licensing deals, which they're since gone from her group. Um, and I drove to Chicago like three days later, right after I wasn't going to let this get cold. And we did a, we did a pitch to them of what we thought we would uh, pay to be able to do it, which was a lot more money than we probably should have at that time. But I had a feeling that it would really launch us and get us a lot of media attention. So within a week, I'd walked up and done deal terms with them over a dinner. And uh, we ended up signing the deal the next day. And the whole idea was for her to build uh, her own line, uh, complete designs, whatever she felt would be cool for her. And then she would send those out on her social. I mean, and, and truly, the first time that she sent one out, she crashed our site with a oh million that went that fast. And we, but we were ill prepared for that amount of traffic, even though I thought I knew, um, I didn't. So it took a few hours to get that back up. So the first time was a little weird, but um, that's kind of how it was. So we had her develop her own line. We wanted to put her touch point on it. So she would be in a position to where she could talk about and, and build the products that she liked versus what we saw. Interesting. Very interesting. And I'm sure that that, do you continue to work with her then? Does she continue to drive traffic? Yeah, we, we don't drive as much traffic straight to buyhappyfeed.com. We put them on a site that she sells her own clothing on. She has some clothing okay. stores. So now we sort of morphed it into she can sell them on her site and she makes a little bit more margin on it than what we do in the licensing fee. And that's pretty much where she sold. So, yeah. Fascinating. And that's kind of, I would like to kind of pivot our conversation more into this licensing opportunity. You know, right. with a lot of um, sellers on Amazon and even e-commerce businesses, a lot of them, you know, go create this a private label product, right? And they find some success in a specific niche. And one of the things that I admire about what you've done with Happy Feet is all the licensing deals that you've been able to create because I think it's yeah. been able to help grow your brand that much faster. And yeah. it allows you to differentiate yourself. You want to talk about how you compete with people trying to knock you off. Well, you get licensing deals that they're never going to have access to, right? That's yeah. another moat that you build around your business. So, um, Pat, why don't you tell us, like, from your standpoint, how important has licensing been in the success of Happy Feet Slippers? I mean, obviously, we've gotten a lot of attention out of licenses. Licenses are kind of a double-edged sword. 
really, you, you have to think about them deeply to make sure that what you're going to do is fiscally responsible for your business from many standpoints. Truthfully, it's like, I'll give you great examples. Number one, the Snooky deal was really one of the first ones we did that was kind of out of the box. And that one was more an internal thing. But we did colleges for a long time. Uh, a partner of mine that I have out in Nebraska has always held those licenses. We've been the only ones really selling those kind of tennis shoe style uh, slippers to colleges other than really one group and they don't do direct to, to consumer stuff. Um, the NFL, we've always done as a subcontracted license through another company. It's not held by us, but it's subcontracted and worked through us. We've been making those same slippers for over 12 or 14 years. Um, it's a little bit of a, a volatile situation with the NFL now because Fanatics is, is really working with the NFL to do all the direct online sales, which mm -hmm. sort of segments the market. And that's one thing we've had a little bit of an issue with. Um, our Disney deal, we originally did in a partnership. So sometimes when you think about developing a big license, we knew that the development of Disney, the way we wanted to do it, would be a long trek. And it really, really was. It took us like a year to build the line. But we partnered with a company who uh, made plush toys. So the, the character look and the faces and things like that, that they had already built and approved by Disney, we adapted that to the slipper business which gave us a huge leg up in development. So when I was doing the development level stuff for Disney, it was great to partner with a group. Of course, Disney, I mean, I could talk all day about how poor I think some of the things, no offense, is handled at Disney. Some of the licensing stuff they do is just awful, the way mm. that they go about this. And they did not renew it in 2020 after us getting in 2018. But now mm. I'm partnered with another company that, because and Disney has five slipper licensees, four or five. So I'm now okay. partnered with one of the, those groups and we're working develop and we're continuing the line and even developing it better. So that one is subcontracted. So sometimes I think you have to think about in licensing what's going to be good for your brand and go after those actual licenses. But you also have to remember a couple of things. Number one, you're going to be paying a huge license fee. You know, if you're going into to, to Disney thinking that they're, you're just going to write a check for eight or ten thousand dollars, you're going to be shocked. I mean, it's it's a six figure number and it's significant to be able to get the rights to be able to do the brand. Then you have to take the characters and you either have to adapt them, which is a development cost and time suck for a year or whatever it's gonna be. And then you have to pay for the product, which in my situation, one item is four or five sizes. So you're if you do 50 mm -hmm. items, you have 250 to 300 SKUs that you have yeah. to buy enough to be able to do it. So it's a massively high amount of investment from a standpoint of, of inventory as well as commitment of capital uh, that you would have in the licensing situation, not to mention the amount of time that it takes to be able to get it to market, which is not an inconsequential amount of money because it takes you away from other things. And I think that anytime someone thinks that there's a way to get a license that can help their business, and I think they should go after it. There's a massive licensing show in Vegas that you can go and see any licensor in the world. So if you felt like there was something like, as an example, we're doing a lot of print slippers now, and I thought Jelly Belly would be a great opportunity. We could do an all over print with all of their different colors. We talked to them, it's kind of went cold, but I think if you think outside the box, you never know what you can find for your product, you know, and, and I would go after any of those opportunities, but I would just make sure it's done in a fiscally responsible way because a lot of people go really wide with licensing and spend a ton of money. And then in reflection, they realize they got hosed on the deal because, you know, it's kind of a race, you know, like Disney, you know, you're talking, if you're talking a, a, a six figure investment for a two year period, you know, you got to get traction in your first year and you got to scale it in the second to be able to make it work. So it's yeah. not the easiest thing in the world, but you should look at your product and analyze it and say, which license would be best for me. Interesting. So you've given us a great lay of the land um, at a high level of licensing, and I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into some of these. But first off, Pat, my my question for you is, 
what type of business is licensing right for? Do you have any recommendations or advice to say, hey, I typically see going the licensing route as a good option for these type of businesses? Yeah, that's a good question. I've never really thought about it from a product level standpoint. I mean, I think that licensing can help anyone. It's like Robert said it on one of the videos we did. We did a, a behind the business uh, thing for like Deluxe Corporation, a, a video. And he talked about how licensing is being able to rent someone else's brand to grow or rent someone else's name to grow your brand. I, I don't know that I would have one specific to any industry. I think college is always always translate because you know you can do anything for a college that a fan will buy i think mm. nfl becomes more niched um you know even though it's catching up from a women's standpoint you'd have to think about the product and whether it is something like that if it's kids driven you know disney can be there but that's a really really expensive lift um so i, I don't that's a great question i never really thought about it from a product standpoint but if you can look at your product and say i'm going to put it in this influencer's hand what industry are they in is the biggest question and what industry, you know, has products that are already there. I mean, like, don't try to recreate it. Like with the NFL, you can look at designs on, you know, on NFL.com to see the kind of things you'd want to make with your product. If you have a, a towel, let's say, the NFL could be a great way to license that towel, but you want to look at prints and things they already have. And I would also be careful to make sure that there's not multiple companies working in that because, you know, the, the guy that I did the license with, uh, that we partnered with, the company that had the plush toys, always said that Disney liked to splice. He liked that word. And splices mm. meant they would have five different groups doing the same product competing against each other. And that's really good for Disney, but it's not great for the yeah. company. So you need to be very careful where you're positioned and whether or not there are other people in your industry that are already doing this. If they have a five to seven year deal with Disney that they've been renewing every two or three years, you know that they have a vendor that's being successful. So you're going to have to be as successful as they are. Yeah, very interesting. So, Pat, if somebody like myself, you know, we have an existing, we have an eight figure brand. Um, we sell, you know, we have 1300 different SKUs. I clearly see an opportunity for us to add licensing into our products um, to be able to help take us to, yeah. a, to a whole nother level. And there's really not, you know, for example, there, there's a lot of people looking for, you know, Disney princess, whatever on Amazon, and there's nothing in the market on Amazon right now for it, because the people that have those licenses, they're not selling into Amazon for whatever reason right now. Yeah. So Pat, what's your recommendation for somebody like myself that's interested at getting into licenses? What's the first step I take and, and where do you go? You talked about a licensing show, but how do you get the ball rolling to make sure that you're talking to actual decision makers and, and what do I need to have from my business standpoint to make sure all my ducks are in a row before I do approach a licensing conversation. Um, yeah, that's the dates on that. Just so I can, it's June 13th to 15th at the Mandalay Bay convention center. People can look it up. It's called licensing expo, licensing expo.com. That's a great place to start. If you think I just want to go learn about it. I want to find some, some people that I can put, you know, use their name on my brand or whatever it's going to be then I think that's the first place to go. I would go and investigate there, investigate online. The first steps have to be to find the right um, type of contact. Like I would network anyone that you know that's done that. You might even go like on Amazon and say, okay, here's a product I think is is uh, different but similar. They have Disney licensing and 
I'm going to find out who this is and I'm going to contact them and see if they have any contacts and get there. I think you have to network it to be able to find the right person, but I think some show a show like that, the licensing show, would be a great place to start because you can walk it and see all the vendors that might fit within what you're at. And you may be able to either get meetings or cards while you're there. Other than that, it's going to be just networking someone or, or emailing that licensor straight through. Interesting. And how do you tell me more about the different types of terms that you've seen with licensing? You've done DreamWorks, you've done NCAA. I know you probably can't get yeah. into the specifics, but what have you seen a variety of things? Like, I guess it sounds like with Disney, it's a six-figure licensing fee for about two years, it sounds like. Uh, are you paying any type of royalty on each of the individual unit sales on top of that six-figure six investment? And maybe they change for um, some of the others, but can you give us a lay of the land of the different licensing structures that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, most of them are pretty similar. You're going to look at a two-year deal. Sometimes you can ask for more. With our licensing deals, we oddly tried to get what we called, like we would always sign ours in let's say you signed it in september and it was two years september of, let's say 2022 that would expire in september of 2024 but what we try to do is go to january of 25 so we get another holiday season so we did like 27 or 28 month deals versus 24 but that just felt that that you know you want to think about your busy season make sure that you don't cut yourself off at the end of a busy season if you're a spring driven product and yours ends at december of 2024 uh, spring of 25 will be sort of empty. So try to think about your selling season when you go in and negotiate it. First of all, most of these licenses are going to be less expensive than what Disney was. Disney is one of the few that is in the six figure range. If you're doing it, uh, depends on the business. Obviously it could be much bigger. They have you estimate your sales and then they estimate exactly what the license fee is going to be. But the way it breaks down is this. Let's say you had a license just for the sake of saying it, that is $50,000. Let's just say that's the number. Okay. And that's for two years. That's $25,000 a year. And let's say that the royalty percentage that you have to pay is 15%. Let's just say that for the sake of saying it. If you pay, um, uh, if you pay $50,000 and you're paying 15% of your sale and it's a $20 item, let's say that that it's on the retail number, that's three bucks a unit. Mm -hmm. You don't pay the royalty on the three bucks a unit until you sold, you pay the company the $50,000. So in that example, let's assume that it's like, uh, let's assume that it's, if it's 12% and you do $500,000 in sales in that quarter, then you're going to owe the company $75,000, but you already paid 50 in. So you pay the $25,000 difference. So the transactional amounts of that 12 to 15%, whatever the number is, and it varies with a lot of companies is covered by the royalty upfront amount that you pay until you pass that as license fees. And then you pay it transactionally every month or quarter or year, whatever they set up to pay it on. And that's how you do it. So you really have to think about how that capital is going to tranche in. So if you're lucky enough to be able to pay it quarterly versus upfront, then it might be a little more palatable. So that's kind of yeah. how it works. But whatever your base royalty is and your percentage, you can sell up to that uh, that upfront royalty without paying another dime. After that, you just pay the percentage. Interesting. And then with that, are they requiring audited financials to make sure that, you know, Whatever you sold, you're, they're actually getting that cut. How does that work in terms yeah, of being I mean, able to trust you're going to have a marketing. You're going to have a marketing percentage you add on top of it, so it might be a couple of percent. But yes, I mean, as far as auditing, they can come back, and Disney did do that to us. They came back and audited our entire contract uh, for mm -hmm. every sales dollar, which 
I'd like to make a comment on how I felt about that after only two years being able to put it together, but I'm going to reserve my comment. That's probably the nicer thing to do. Um, but yeah, they can definitely come back and you'd have to open up your books. You need to document it very well. You need to, you need to make sure in your, in your accounting system or your CRM or your inventory management system that you have reports that you can use to back those numbers up, catalog them the whole way through. So if they come back, you have the ability to show those sales. They definitely can't audit you. And be sure that you're being all right, correct about it, because if they come back and audit and you lose, that is a massive penalty. It's a mm. lot of money. So you need to make sure that your numbers are, are fairly straight. That's interesting. And when it comes time for renewing a license, how difficult is that? Are they judging it based on the, the success that you had over the last two years? Yeah. Um, or how does that work? I think it really depends. I mean, with ours, I, I can look at it many different ways. Number one, DreamWorks, we ran it for two uh, periods, four years, and it just didn't hit as much as we wanted. So we sort of trailed off on that license and we have the ability to still make them through a subcontracted thing that I have, which is nice because we can keep it going. Um, but then I, I think that on renewal with Disney, it really wasn't even given an opportunity because they didn't feel like that the sales numbers were at the level they want, which is the most short-sighted thing I've ever seen. It's like Disney would rather someone sell a million dollars and wholesale to someone that they make 150000 on than to sell three hundred fifty or 400000 of direct e-com that they make 225000 on. They look mm -hmm. at a top-end number. They want to see this glitzy 10 to $15 million sales number, which is not the number that anyone should be concentrating on in licensing anymore. They should be changing their eyes to look at a direct consumer who's getting the right engagement, who's getting the right conversion rates, who's adding value and who's growing as a vendor. Because it takes time to grow a D2C brand. It doesn't take as much time uh, to, to do something that would be B2B and, and yeah. then I'm reselling or whatever it's going to be on wholesale. You can get a big hit right away and sell $2 million, but if the sell through at those stores is crap, then it's not going to be any good. So I think it depends on the license, which way you do it. But as far as renewals, Stay in touch with that person. Make sure they're giving you what you need. Try to make sure that your your growth is good and then go back and be in a situation where you look at the numbers and reflection and hopefully renegotiate it or re-sign it. I think it's always just depends on the individual, but I would work interactively with your person at that licensing agency throughout that two-year period to show what you're doing to make sure if it's on the fence and you want to renew it, that they still are willing to give you the chance to continue to grow it. And I think some people just have to change their mentality on licensing and how that uh, you know, it impacts their bottom line because Disney looks at it the wrong way to me. Fascinating. Do you, are there any licenses that you have not renewed then? It's hmm. a good question. Um, you know, DreamWorks, we can subcontract it now and Disney is subcontracted as well as the NFL. So I found partner companies to work with on this, which is great because then you don't have to worry about the upfront and you're working on uh, someone who already has products. It's easier for development. So I, I don't have any that I've left, but they've transitioned, I guess, best way to put it. And we're still working with the companies, but it's through someone else. Yeah. What, can you explain the difference between having a subcontracted license between and you going directly to Disney or to DreamWorks and having your own license with them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically think of it this way: if if you're if you're thinking that Happy Feet Slippers needs to be the brand on the slipper, that's not going to happen if it's subcontracted. The subcontracted license will be another company that's larger than us. Like this company that's larger than us is a is a massive manufacturer into big retail stores, and they don't do direct to consumer. So we came in, utilized Disney to make the products we make and sell in direct to consumer. So it was a win win for both sides. They make the margin on it up front and they pay Disney and we do the licensing stuff through them. So we don't pay the upfront. We just pay the percentage as we go through transactionally. It's cleaner, easier, and it actually may be better for Disney in, in hindsight. 
So I think that it would be like thinking about you signing a deal to, to do a Disney deal right in front of Disney or going to someone who already signed that deal and saying, make it, but I, they end up having to have their name on it because the tag as the co-manufacturer, but we use our brand. Interesting. Okay. So they're going to have a different, there's going to be a different brand name, I guess, on that product then? On one of the, on the, the white seal tags, it would have to say that the license was manufactured under this. It doesn't have to be prominent, but it has to be on the tags. It says, okay, if you're trying to track back this licensing, it's the XYZ company, not Happy Feet Slippers. That's basically what needs to be on there, but that can be very small on the packaging anywhere. It just has to be stated. Okay, so you're just stating, so if you're subcontracting that license out, you need to state you know, who that parent company is, I guess, that you're exactly. subcontracting. In that example, if XYZ Corp is the one that holds the license with the company, the, the tags need to show my label with my trademark, but then manufacture with this company and their trademark. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a difficult situation at all. We've been doing it for a long time, and it's great to try to find that. If you can find those partnerships, it's a great way to bring a product to market without having to pay the upfront. And a lot of times, companies are really small, and they need to test it out. So like, if you do an NFL license, you might only want to do the top five teams because if you go deep on 32, you're expanding your, your SKUs. And as you're testing this, you might need it to be smaller. So a subcontract company would be a great way to do it. And maybe they can help you in the development of it. You need to find manufacturers that already have that licensing. So sometimes that's hard to find, but if you do your research, you definitely find it. Would you advise if, if people do want to go that subcontracting route, which sounds like it may be a better alternative, is it still going to the licensing expo probably the best step to take there? Or is it really just digging into your network and trying to get contacts because those subcontractors really aren't showing up at that expo? I mean, the licensing show is going to be if you do stuff direct. Like if you wanted, like in my example before, if I want to go see Jelly Belly, I want to go sit with them, take their license and negotiate the contract and sign it myself and pay the upfront. That's what you would find at the licensing show. If you're going to find other products, you know, might go to regular trade shows and like in my example, go find trade shows where they're showing their slippers that they make and then see if you can make something that's customer or piggyback their manufacturing. It's a little bit harder to do that way. The direct way is going to be the best way for a company to do it. But if you don't have the resources, then subcontracting is, is a decent idea. It's just harder to find. And, that, and that you're going to do some research for that. But truthfully, you think about it, if you're trying to do NFL, just go on NFL.com, search a product, see if you can find something similar to what you make. Like if you're making a sweatsuit, a company that makes a hoodie uh, is probably a great company to talk to. And you may call them and say, hey, I have this different hoodie and it's proprietary and I'd like to be able to make them in NFL. Can can you get these approved? And, and sometimes they'll help you. You never know because they'll make some, you know, ancillary licensing money on it, too, plus the markup to help manufacture it. But they probably have to control it. That's the difficulty is that you're, you're really turning over control of uh, manufacturing, even though you have input to another company. Interesting. Okay. And with the subcontracting, they're going to make a little bit of money. Maybe that 15% royalty fee becomes 17, 18%, right? And they're taking 3% off the top. It's going to be is more that, than that. I mean, somebody's going to, if they're manufacturing, they're going to want to wholesale it to you. Most of the ones that I have, there's, you know, significant markup. It's not a few cents. It's a few dollars. Because okay. you, I mean, you have you have your licensing group that has to you know that you that goes to work for you in their offices, development people. There's all kinds of behind the scenes costs, and so they need to make sure that they do it. So you'll definitely see a markup. So like, it wouldn't be shocking to me if if you had if you made a ten dollar item if it wasn't thirteen or fourteen by the time it's done or mm -hmm. more, uh, just because they have to pay you know their licensing people, the license itself, the people in their office, all that markup to be able to manufacture. It's kind of like a uh, more like a wholesale uh, distributorship type of model.
Okay. So you're literally giving up all of the manufacturing then for your specific product, right? And it then turns it over to the sub who you're subcontracting that license from because they yeah, have to a have a lot of times control. it's going to have to be that yes now if you have a manufacturer that you're already using they may go in and vet that factory and place the orders but understand the order would have to be placed by the vendor that has the license and the import uh, freight duty and tax and the tags have to match that it's okay to have your brand and okay to take uh possession of the goods and it's just like any other wholesale sale so but i would i would try a lot of times to use your manufacturer but many times you're gonna have to use theirs Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Sounds like we could spend another few hours, I think, digging into the weeds of licensing. There's there's a yeah. lot to pull back there. For it's sure. definitely a lot. I mean, you've got a lot of advantages, a lot of disadvantages, a lot of concerns, things to think about. Yeah. Pat, as we begin to wrap up, you have a lot of experience as an M&A advisor there, Quiet Light Brokerage. Yeah. Um, is there any advice that you would give to established, you know, seven-figure e-commerce brands they're looking to grow their business and hopefully exit that brand. Yeah. Uh, are there just some quick pointers that you would give to people to say, hey, here are the things you need to start considering now if yeah. exiting is, is something in your playbook down the road? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons I'm at Quiet Light is I built and sold multiple businesses. My first business I started was I was 22 years old. And it was actually a service-based business, a coffee service actually in Columbus, Ohio. And I had that. I've sold companies in Nashville that I had and, and other businesses and obviously still on Happy Feet. So I've got a lot of entrants and exits. I think the biggest things, you know, when we talk at Quiet Light, I mean, obviously people know Quiet Light pretty well. If you read the Entrepreneur Playbook, you know, there are four pillars to, um, to a sale. You know, there's, there's risk, growth, transferability, and documentation. Risk comes down to many, many things. It could be making sure that your sales um, are consistent or growing. You, you want at least a little bit of an uptick. It doesn't have to be 30, 40, 50% a month, but you need to at least be on a, on a smooth or slight uptick in your revenue. That's really important to find the right time when you're, you're, your business is looking its best. If it's on a downturn, you have to explain that. There's all kinds of reasons why. So make sure you're on a growth trend. That's the first thing. Risk-wise, you need to make sure that your products, you know, like your 80-20, let's say that you don't have a product that's 25% more of your sales. You need to make sure it's less than that, your top product, because that, that introduces a lot of risk when you look at possibly being deactivated on Amazon. Let's say they lose that one product and it's 50 or 60% of your sales. You can be out of business in two months. So I think to make sure that you have the right amount of SKUs in your business. Transferability is usually not an issue because these Amazon stores transfer pretty easily. If someone has a Shopify store, it's pretty simple. But some of the things you want to do in transferability is document your SOPs. I think people should have an SOP doc up all the time. So if there's one little process, you can put it on an SOP doc so you can explain to someone what you do. Secondarily, I think people should use Loom or some other kind of recording thing to actually document that. As simple as stuff as if you go into ShipStation to do orders, how you process it, where you send it, what you do. If you videotape those and catalog it when you sell, it's going to be much easier to explain how the business is run. And they'll have reference points on that. But really, the final one is going to be make sure that your financials are in good order. You know, you need to make sure you're on a accrual basis uh, accounting, not cash. And some people don't even understand the difference of that. Cash basis is on the P&L that month, I put the amount of product that I bought. And accrual is I put the amount of product 
that I shipped to customers against the landed cost of goods sold. Most people don't know the difference in that. And if you don't, we're happy to help you acquire light, but you need to make sure you're on accrual, that the only thing that's in the cost of goods things you're sh- are things you ship that month to a customer, not what you purchase. Make sure that you're looking at the landed cost of goods sold, the cost of the item, the shipping to get in there, any offloading costs or whatever adds up to your landed cost of goods sold. That needs to be multiplied out by the units you sold every month so your financials are attra- are, are uh, good. So the biggest thing you can make sure that you do is that if you get into diligence, someone's not going to say, what in the world's going on here? Your numbers don't match your tax returns. If you have personal stuff running through there, like you're doing little Johnny's daycare or whatever it is, get out of it. Yeah. Don't put it in there. Make sure that you don't have things in there you would have to explain. Don't have commingled businesses in there. If you have a, two businesses and there are two brands, let's say, I'd split them off immediately. I'd get the books separated so if you can sell one and hold the other, you don't have to explain it. So we're always happy to talk to people about how to prepare, but I think the biggest things that I find people need to do is make sure that they're financially prepared. And the other thing you really need to do is get a baseline of where you're at because you don't know a goal until you know where you start. And the truth is we're happy to run your financials, tell you where the valuation is now, and if you're going to run it for another year, that's great. You know, Quiet Light is all entrepreneurs. We're just different. We are not employees. We're not in any hurry to get your listing. We want it to be right for you. Most people we turn away from listing their business immediately when they come in because it's either not ready or we need to make sure that they take the time to clean up the things you want. So I think there's a lot of things that go into it, but what we like to do is do a baseline valuation based on your financials and then give you guidance where you want to go as you're waiting that year to be able to get prepared if that's what you want to do, because smart money comes in and prepares before. They don't come to you and say, hey, I'd like to list in the next two weeks. That's never a good process. They're never truly ready. So I would just make sure that you do that. And most of the stuff that needs to be cleaned up is all financial. That's that's really the biggest. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And on that point of the financials and also growing, you know, you want to see a steady growth rate. I know with a lot of e-commerce businesses, in 2020 and even into 2021, there was a boom to e-commerce, right? But then that started to trail off towards the end of 2021 and into 2022, right? And so there could have been a downturn. As somebody that's looking to acquire a business, how far back do they wanna see perpetual growth, right? Is it, I wanna see five years of constant, constant growth or are they looking at the last two years or is it the last year? Um, any rule of thumb that way? I think the most critical is your trailing 12 months. I mean, we basically base the business price on trailing 12 months, which is your profit, what we call SDE, seller discretionary earnings. So what seller discretionary earnings is, is that you get a bottom line profit straight off your P&L. But we do addbacks, things like owner payroll, owner cell phone, internet access, meals and entertainment, travel, consulting, uh, or I'm sorry, not consulting, but um, like trade shows, things like that that you do. Those are ad- allowable add backs. So what we do is add that back to your profit to get an actual adjusted seller discretionary earnings. And that's how we price the business based on that last 12 months. I would try to see if you can have consistent growth for 18 to 24 months is going to be what you really want, the most recent. And if you have slight downturns during that, but upticks, sometimes people understand that. There are cyclical things that can happen. You know, everyone was talking about COVID normalization when they had high numbers during COVID and they dropped off. So there's always going to be an explanation, but you need to make sure that that uh, that explanation is something that you can give a buyer. We're seeing a ton of businesses come in right now that are on declining trends, probably because of the economy in most cases. And it's an unfortunate time to, to have to sell if you're forced into doing that on a downturn. Yeah. 
What are you seeing in regards to the market for e-commerce businesses right now? I know the multiples were really high in 2020, 2021 with all the aggregators. Yes. Um, you know, we saw high multiples. What multiples are you seeing now? And, you know, do you see that changing, you know, in the future? And is your advice to no. maybe wait for a couple more years and let the market play out a little bit more favorably? It, it really depends. I mean, there's still a market to sell businesses. There's still buyers out there. And no matter what anyone thinks, even if you have a little bit of a downtrend, we should talk about it because there are people out there that look for value. It's just like the stock market. If a stock goes way down, some people see an opportunity there. It doesn't mean the company's doing better, but they see an opportunity to get a value that they can actually, you know, uh, get get uh, taken to it. So I would encourage anyone to take a look. There's still good buyers out there, but they're mostly looking for really good businesses. And that's where we've seen a little bit of a drop is, is the quality of business coming in. Most are at level or downturn, potentially. If they are on an upturn, then, you know, uh, multiples have been good. If I have to guess, I think they're probably off a quarter to a half point of when we were really busy with relation to those. But a lot of that was pushed because aggregators were just basically trying to outbid each other, which now in reflection, we can all see how that worked out, which is clearly mm -hmm. not well. You know, you, you if you overpay for businesses and think you can normalize them into 15 other companies, you're going to have a, a, a difficulty in an integration side to begin with. And I think that's where a lot of aggregators have slowed down. It's not that they're not looking at deals. They're just trying to onboard and make everything that they already bought go better because they, it was a race yeah. to get going. And some of them had issues because of that. And some are selling off assets and some are trying to retrench and be able to figure out how to operate it. So I guess the biggest thing that you want to do is just make sure that when you're coming in and you're doing your sale, that it's just the right time. And that's why talking to an advisor like someone at Quiet Light is really big because I may be able to look at their things, their financials. Like I looked at one the other day that I was a little surprised. I asked our advisors, I asked my advisors after I ran it, uh, showed where the SDE was, and they gave me a multiple they thought was higher than what I thought. So I think the market mm. can still be good if the business is great. It just needs to be the right timing based on your financials. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And Pat, that's that's a great summary. And I think a great way to kind of cap off everything that we've been talking about, that the best thing you can do is be building your business for exit, even if you're not going to exit next year, yes. but begin building your business for that exit and even if that doesn't come for five years or another decade, your business is going to be that much further along because of those good practices that you've put in place. Um, Pat, as we Absolutely. wrap Absolutely, it's all about preparation. Yeah, totally agree. And Pat, as we wrap things up, I love to leave the audience with three actionable takeaways from each episode. Here are the three takeaways that right. I noted, Pat. Let me know if you think I'm missing something here. All right. So number one, the first thing that we kind of talked about was if you have a product that you feel like could be knocked off that, or you don't have a utility patent or a design patent, right? One of the things you need to do is get serious with your IP protection and go get the design patents if you can, or at least copyright them. But having boots on the ground of somebody that is actually looking for those copycats and wherever you see any type of infringement you know, going in and filing those cease and desist or those IP infringement claims against them and, and taking it seriously. I think there's a lot of business owners that also hesitate that they may be scared of some type of retaliation. And I think that's a mindset shift that people need to have because you need to protect the unique ideas that you bring into the world. So that's, that's advice. Tip number one, I would give action item number two. 
is going to be seeing licensing, um, determining if licensing is a good play for your business or not. We went into a lot of the details of licensing, and there's even more to unpack as it relates to licensing. But it can be a really good way. I love that you referenced what Robert Hershevac said. You know, you're renting somebody else's brand to kind of, you know, amplify your own brand at the same time. I think that's a beautiful way to see it. Now, can it be expensive, you know, paying 15% royalty fees? Most people in the Amazon space, you're lucky to have a 15 to 20% margin, right? But at the same time, you know, you're going to need to price your product at a premium when you do have those licenses to take those type of things into consideration. But if you're serious about building your brand, licensing can and truly be a good play for you, but it's something that you're going to need to look into specifically for your business. Yeah. And then last but not least, Pat, you covered the four different kind of pillars of building a business to exit. So advice number three and action item number three is start creating your business today for the business that you want to exit. Don't save, you know, getting into financial shape or trying to really grow your numbers in, you know, in three years when you plan to exit. Start doing those things now because relating to, you know, documenting your SOPs, that's going to be super important for your business today. Heaven forbid one of your your team members leaves. Well, you should have those SOPs in place that you could plug somebody else in tomorrow and they can start executing. And so a lot of those finite, those principles that you covered, I would definitely recommend everybody go and, and take an analysis of where your business is at today and start implementing some of those best practices now. And whether you exit next year, 24 months from now, or five years from now, your business will be 10 times better than what it would have been had you not done that today. Pat, is there anything else that I've missed that you think we, we should give as action items for this episode? No, I, I think I think you covered a lot. I think that people have to take their business and as they're trying to grow it, like I've, I've had conversations with an entrepreneur here in, in Kentucky that uh, the main meeting that we were going to have was try to figure out why our advertising isn't doing well. Well, it turned out it wasn't our advertising. Turns out it's probably a price thing and it's a conversion thing that was bigger. I think you have to look at your business, analyze what's working well, what's not. Reach out to people that can help you with that, whether it's ground level advice on licensing, which, you know, we're always happy to give, and I'm sure you'll find other people. Make sure to reach out and find that and make sure you're getting books in place and all everything else will fall together. And when you're ready to exit, you know, why don't we talked about a whole lot of things. Just make sure that you're reaching out and understanding what's needed to be done six to nine months to a year ahead of time because you need to do a lot of preparation. And, and that's what we try to be is much more educational in Quiet Light. We judge ourselves by the quality and number of conversations we have, not number of listings. It's not even close to the number of listings. It's about making sure we're adding value along the way so you can exit the business in the right position at the maximum value. That's really what Quiet Light's all about. I love it. That's great, Pat. Pat, I like to ask each guest three final questions to wrap it all up. So I'm going to go through these. Number one is what's been the most influential book that you've read and why? Oh, and that's interesting. Um, actually, you know, I, I think I, I do a lot of reading online, which is kind of like not reading a book. But I, I've read Buy Then Build with Walker Dibel from Quite Light, as well as Expert Playbook. Um, I did have someone say this is a good book that I just bought. So I'm looking forward to reading it, which is the um, what's it? the fish that ate the whale. 
I heard it's really, really good. I'm anxious to read that, but I don't have any that I'd recommend other than those other two. Awesome. I haven't heard the fish that ate the whale, so. Yeah, I heard about this at a trade show. They said the book's phenomenal. Interesting. Very cool. All right, Pat, next question. What's your favorite productivity tool or maybe a new software tool that you've been using in your business that you think can be a game changer? That's interesting. I, I don't really... I'm so tied into different systems. Like in my e-com, I have so many different things. And in Quiet Light, I have several different things. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I guess this is kind of an odd answer. I like sending Loom videos versus emails. And I, I don't I don't love sending emails all the time. It's just too redundant. So I like to in greetings at times in Quiet Light, I'll send in video just kind of get a touch point with someone. So I guess Loom might be it. But I, as far as productivity, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty simple. My systems are real simple, and they're all tied into to custom work, I guess. That's a harder one. Oh, well, I love it. Loom is one of my favorite tools that we use in our business yeah. as well. I feel like I can explain things much better and being able to, like, visually share the screen at the same time, um, you know. Yeah, Picture and also, I mean, I, my day's kind of chaotic. I don't want to find things that makes it smoother. I mean, I, I got to have a chaotic day with all kinds of tabs everywhere, you know? It's like, <laughs> these my OCD stuff. No, I love it. All right, last question here, Pat. Who is somebody that you admire or respect the most in the e-commerce space that you think other sellers should be following and why? Wow, that's a really good one. Um, you know, we have 16 great advisors at Quiet Light. I, I respect all of them. So I think any of those people would be easy. Um, outside of that, I had an opportunity to talk with Mike Nunez, who has bought a bunch of companies from Quiet Light. He's one of the best operators of e-com that I've talked to. Um, extremely amazing guy. Hey, we did a Quiet Giants on him. at. Uh, it's on our YouTube page if you want to see about his exit. Um, I think he is probably as grounded and smart as any guy I've sat and talked with on e-com in a long time. Awesome. Awesome. Great recommendations. And yes, all of the Quiet Light advisors, they come with a wealth of information and knowledge and actual experience running their own businesses. And I think that's the value that's unique with Quiet Light is each of you are day-to-day -day operating your own businesses and um, not just sitting on the M&A advising side. I agree so, with that. Pat, thank you so much for your time. If people want to reach out to you, learn more, about your journey or reach out to you. Maybe they're interested in selling their business. Where can people reach out to you at? Uh, they can reach out at Pat at quietlight.com, Q-U-I-E-T-L-I-G-H-T.com, Pat at quietlight.com. I'm always willing to help. And if someone has an interest in exiting their business, any questions, it's not going to be a salesy talk. It's only going to be about you. There's no ego in those conversations. It's about positioning you well. Awesome. I definitely recommend people reach out to Pat if you have any questions and interest in exiting your brand. He's got a wealth of information to share, as you've heard today. And uh, Pat, we appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Visit ecombreakthrough.com for more information. If you've enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can show your appreciation is by clicking the subscribe button and quickly leaving a review. See you again next time.